Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. Before we get started, we have a favor to ask you, our listeners. We're so grateful for all your support, and we want to hear from you about what you think of the show. So we've created a short two-minute survey for you to fill out by clicking on the link in the show notes or visiting taxnotes.co slash podcast survey. That's taxnotes.co slash podcast survey. We look forward to hearing from you. This week, better living through taxes. On July 1st, Superfund excise taxes on dozens of chemicals and hazardous substances took effect. These taxes, brought back by the Biden administration after a 25-year lapse, have been viewed favorably by environmental groups. However, chemical industry groups are questioning the taxes and their implementation. So what does the return of these taxes mean for taxpayers and businesses alike? Tax Notes contributing editor Nana Amasarfo will talk more about that in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes state author Nikki Dobe about her article on recently enacted state laws intended to prevent taxation of residents by other states. But first, Ama, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, David. It's great to be back. So to begin with, could you give us a bit of background on Superfund taxes and, and, and what they're really designed to do? Yes. So the Superfund taxes are excise taxes that are imposed on chemicals and hazardous imported substances to raise revenue um, to fund environmental cleanups in the United States. So any manufacturer, producer, or importer of chemicals or substances that fall under the law must pay a tax that is graduated per ton based on the danger uh, posed by the chemical or substance. So what is this Superfund cleanup program? What happens there? So the Superfund program was created by Congress in 1980 to clean up highly polluted land and water created by industrial pollution or oil spills, natural disasters, or other events. So its official name is the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, CERCLA, but it's widely known as Superfund, and it authorizes the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to clean up contaminated sites using funds generated by these excise taxes. And cleanup happens in a few ways. So in the case of industrial pollution, When the EPA knows who is responsible, it can force those parties to clean up the land or reimburse the EPA to do the cleanup. But in cases where the government can't identify the responsible party, then the EPA cleans up the site using money from the Superfund program. Now, from the environmental perspective, why are these Superfund excise taxes important? Well, I think when people think about Superfund cleanups, they often think about abandoned warehouses and factories that are kind of in the middle of nowhere or condemned land that is far away from population centers. But the reality is that most of us or someone we know actually live close to a Superfund hazardous waste site. According to the White House, one in every five people in the U.S. live within three miles of a Superfund site. And so that adds up to about 73 million people, which is a really, really large number. And then we also know that some communities are more impacted by these sites more than others. So over 25 percent of Black Americans and nearly 30 percent of Hispanic Americans live within a three mile radius. Now, what happened when the original Superfund taxes expired? Well, a backlog formed and there were dozens of sites that 
either needed cleanup and couldn't receive any funding. And then there were dozens more where cleanup had started, but needed to pause because funding ran out. So the EPA announced a few months ago that it was going to release $1 billion to clean up 49 sites that hadn't been able to receive any funding and then also restart cleanup at other sites around the country. Do we have a sense of what sort of cleanup sites are are being funded? Yes. So the Biden administration said that it will prioritize cleanup in the communities that have been most impacted by this industrial pollution. So about 60 percent of the Superfund sites that will receive funding under the new law are in historically underserved communities, according to the EPA. Now, I understand you recently spoke with someone to give the chemical groups side of this issue. Who did you talk to and, and what all did you talk about? So I spoke with Nicholas Mowbray from Baker Hostetler, who is very well acquainted with these excise taxes. He has represented business groups who are trying to figure out what their obligations are under these new rules. The reality is that even though the taxes will fund good works, they're also creating a lot of uncertainty for taxpayers. I mean, the government has said that taxable products can be added or subtracted from the list and taxpayers are trying to sort out the mechanics of that and other compliance issues. So Nick was very gracious to stop by and explain what some of the major issues are. All right, let's go to that interview. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, on July 1st, Superfund excise taxes on dozens of chemicals and hazardous substances went live. And as a bit of background for our listeners, those taxes were resurrected after a 25-year hiatus. The original Superfund excise taxes expired in 1995, and it took lawmakers 25 years to agree to bring them back. So the taxes were reinstated through the recent Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and they're widely viewed as a bipartisan achievement of that package. On one hand, the excise taxes are being hailed as a step in the right direction for environmental justice and anti-pollution efforts in the United States because the taxes are expected to raise $14.5 billion that will be used to fund cleanups at hazardous waste sites throughout the country as part of the Superfund Cleanup Program, which is administered by the Environmental Protection Agency. But then on the other hand, Chemicals industry groups and others have raised a lot of questions about what they should expect with this new regime. So I'm really happy, Nick, that we have you joining us today as you've represented some business groups navigating these new taxes and can give our listeners some context on what this all means from a tax perspective. So my first question for you is, can you please provide a little background on the Superfund excise taxes? So first, what are they? Secondly, what are they designed to do? And third, how is this new iteration different from the old one? Yeah, absolutely. So when people refer to Superfund taxes, they're generally referring to excise taxes that are imposed on taxable chemicals listed under Section 4661 and then taxable substances that are listed under 4672A3, which are made from taxable chemicals. As you mentioned, the Superfund taxes were first enacted in the early 1980s as one of several provisions intended to fund a hazardous substance cleanup program. They were really enacted to address concerns raised by the EPA relating to pollution and contamination, and the taxes relate to hazardous substances 
and are intended to attach at the beginning of the commercial chain of production, meaning that they apply when a taxable chemical is distributed, consumed, sold, or otherwise disposed of. As you mentioned, they, they expired in the mid-90s, so it's, it's been quite some time since these have, you know, while these provisions remained in the code, they weren't, they were essentially dormant. You know, the Infrastructure Act turned these back on. They sunset December 31st, 2031, so they're going to be around for the next decade. And um, as you mentioned, revenues from them will be used primarily to address a backlog of, of Superfund sites awaiting funding so that sites that need cleanup, but they need to be funded before they can be cleaned up. Companies that manufacture, produce, or import taxable chemicals are subject to a tax under, so the keyword there is taxable chemicals, are subject to a tax under Section 4661 and 4662 based on the tonnage of the taxable chemical that is used, manufactured, or produced. And the rates per ton are prescribed by statute. And one of the big differences with this iteration of these taxes versus the old ones is they've sort of doubled up on what that rate is in the statute. There's a statutorily prescribed list of 42 taxable chemicals. With respect to the second provision I mentioned, and for taxable substances, importers that sell or use taxable substances are also subject to a tax under Section 4671. There are several taxable substances listed in the statute, but the statute also instructs the IRS to add any substance in which taxable chemicals, again, taxable chemicals is the key word, and those are defined in section 4661. So the IRS is to add any substance in which taxable chemicals constitute more than 20% of the weight or value of the substance. The, the 20% figure is also a change from the previous statutes. Under the previous statute, it was 50%. There are two ways a substance is added to this list. So the, the statute has a, a number of them in it, but it also provides a mechanism to add or subtract substances from it. The first is that the Treasury Department, in consultation with the EPA, has to determine that a taxable chemical constitutes more than 20% of the weight or value of the materials used to produce the substance. The IRS has done this initially with a notice 2021-66, which was issued pretty shortly after these were enacted in the Infrastructure Act. The second is if an importer or exporter petitions the IRS to add or remove a substance. Importers have to calculate the tax for taxable substances under 4671, and there's really very little guidance on how to do this calculation. The IRS recently offered prescribed rates for 121 of the 151 taxable substances, but taxpayers aren't, aren't required to use that IRS rate. Thank you so much for that very comprehensive overview. I think from everything that you described, it's very clear that we're dealing with a complex regime with many, many moving parts. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Now is the time to focus on firm preparation because same as last year is no longer working for your staff or clients. It's more important than ever to assess current firm processes and make improvements. The SafeSend suite automates manual labor-intensive tasks across the tax engagement, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Automation is transforming how firms work. Schedule a demo at safesend.com to get started and smile knowing that you will be ready for next tax season.
I understand that there are some concerns about the definitions of manufacturers, producers, and importers, as you had mentioned. And there are also concerns about the definition of taxable substances and how those substances can be added or subtracted from the list and what the scope of an item on the list encompasses. So I'm hoping that you can explain what some of those concerns are. That's right. There's a number of concerns regarding gaps by the statute and the lack of guidance filling those gaps. With respect to taxable substances, there's a number of concerns. I'll, I'll cover a few here. The first is that the statute defines 50 or so specific substances, and as I mentioned before, allows Treasury to add or subtract items from that list. So far, Treasury and the IRS have issued a notice, 2021-66, which added an initial list of taxable substances identical to the list in place pre-1996. Thus, you know, I, I think there's some questioning whether the list really needs some refreshing. The second concern is clarity regarding some of the substance contained on the list of taxable substances and what the process will be to request a determination that a substance either be removed or added to the list. So there's really two concerns there. One is clarification of what's on it. And the second is adding or removing a taxable substance from the list. With respect to clarification, there's another comment letters that, that have made this point that the list should include some further classification, such as a, a Schedule B number or a chemical abstract service number to create uniformity and consistency in how the tax is applied. So in layman's terms, that means that there'd be some type of identification number that would, for a chemist, they would clearly know what that means. It, and, and the concern that this is getting at is that there are things on the list, such as vinyl resins that, again, to a layman, vinyl resins seems somewhat specific, but apparently there's really some more clarity as that could be a vague term to a chemist. With respect to adding, removing taxable substances, notice 2021-66 suspended a prior notice that was in place when these taxes were last in place. It's notice 89-61. And that notice established the process to request a determination to add or remove something from the list of taxable substances. The IRS issued an FAQ recently saying that they would give guidance soon on the procedures for adding and removing substances. So hopefully that's something that happens in in the coming days. So the third of these points is how to calculate the rate or the amount of tax for taxable substances. There's some questions whether it, it should be calculated based on the volumes of a taxable chemical used to produce a substance. If it is the volume, when should a taxpayer calculate that? Is it the amount used to produce it, or is it the amount that appears in in the final product? And and these are things that the statute hasn't filled, and it's left open for taxpayers to interpret. So those are a lot of open questions that you just raised. And I would love to know where exactly are we in terms of IRS guidance? What has been issued, and what are taxpayers waiting for? Sure. So, you know, in my opening comments, I mentioned notice 2021-66. That was issued um, shortly after the passage of the Infrastructure Act, and it really addressed taxable substances and provided that initial list. Certain registration requirements for specific exemptions are are granted under Section 4662. And, And then they also requested taxpayer comments, and a number of taxpayers have submitted comments including my firm, on behalf of the Association of Battery Recyclers and Battery Council International. 
The second piece of guidance that's been issued is notice 2022-15. That was released in April 22, and it really relates to relief for penalties and issues associated with calculating and depositing the tax. From a tax compliance perspective, I think that'll really help. It sort of gives taxpayers guidance on how they can achieve the safe harbor and, and how they can avoid um, you know, getting penalties or interest imposed on them for, for making good faith efforts to comply with the taxes. The third piece of guidance came out in the end of June. Um, it's an FAQ of 15 questions. And then it's also a list of excise tax rates for 121 of the 151 taxable substances. And again, those rates are, um, they're, they're, taxpayer can diverge from them, but they also can rely on them. So there's been three, three pieces of guidance so far in total. What hasn't been issued is regulations uh, or notice the proposed rulemaking, which I, I think would be a significant tool and an aid to taxpayers in, in, in figuring out these rules. Absolutely. So along those lines, from what you have heard and observed, what are some outstanding guidance issues that are important to taxpayers? What are some uncertainties that they're concerned about as they wait for regulations? Sure. So the first I'd say is guidance on how taxpayers should document exceptions to the tax. And this is probably what I get asked the most about. These taxes attach to the first sale or use of a taxable chemical. But there's several exceptions, and, and to discuss one of them, and, and my point around documentation is one of these exceptions is for butane or methane that's sold for use in the production of fuel. So if you sell butane or methane and it's going to be used in the production of fuel, this excise tax doesn't apply. But that you know, it assumes that a seller obtains some type of documentation from a buyer that that's how the buyer will actually use the butane or methane. It, you know, basically documenting that they're going to use it in the manufacture production of a fuel, but there's no guidance of what type of documentation will suffice. Is, is it enough for taxpayers to have contractual provisions such as representations about how the chemical will be used? Or is there something more they need to do, like have statements in an invoice regarding the same? In addition, if, if taxpayer, taxpayers may sell a taxable chemical to a buyer and a buyer may warehouse it for months and months and months and then resell it. And if the original purchase by the buyer was for one of these exemptions, like it's going to be, it's methane or butane that's going to be used in a fuel, um, what documentation does the original seller have regarding the second or third sale of this? And what do they need to have if they are audited to show that down the chain the original sale and, and the exemption from the original sale, that's how the, the taxable chemical was actually used for. The same issues, I mean, I'm talking about butane or methane, but the same issues apply to nitric acid, sulfuric acid, ammonia, uh, methane that's used to produce ammonia for things that are in qualified fertilizer substances. So this is a big area. I, I get a lot of questions about it. You know, what, what should we be inserting in our contracts? What types of clauses should we be having there? And, and what types of things should our logistics and billing departments be doing to, to make sure we're documenting how these are going to be sold. The second is a piece of guidance that I think they really could issue and, and it would be helpful in, to cover in regulations, would be providing some type of definitions not addressed by the statute, such as what constitutes manufacturing or producing. Do the Treasury and the IRS consider things like recycling to be the same as manufacturing, producing an original used taxable chemical? 
when the statute came in place in the eighties, the abilities for companies to reuse and recycle um, taxable chemicals, it's, it's come a long, long, long way since then. And, and so I think it would, it would be worthwhile to revisit and, and possibly reward taxpayers that are able to document and are able to recycle and reuse taxable chemicals in, in very high percentages to, to possibly give them some type of exception to say that's not manufacturing or that's not producing. In the third point, which kind of dovetails from that, is that I, I think the IRS and Treasury could help taxpayers understand the way credits work in this space. For example, do taxpayers have the ability to receive a credit for taxable chemicals that are reused or recycled? If they do, what would a taxpayer need to do to establish that a tax was previously paid on, on an original use taxable chemical that's being recycled? Tax Analyst is proud to announce a partnership with the American Bar Association Section of Taxation to launch the Tax Analyst Public Service Fellowship. This new two-year fellowship offers practicing tax attorneys the opportunity to work in public interest tax law with a nonprofit or government entity. For the inaugural year of this fellowship, the sponsoring organization will be La Posada Tax Clinic in Twin Falls, Idaho. The tax section has opened the application period for the inaugural fellow. Applications are due July 29th. Applicants should have three to five years of experience practicing tax law and be willing to relocate to Twin Falls, Idaho. For more information and for links to apply, see our press release at taxnotes.com fellowship. That's taxnotes.com fellowship. So to wrap up everything that you have shared with us today, in your opinion, how do you think that the IRS can perhaps try and make this new iteration of the excise taxes less burdensome on taxpayers? I think they really need to issue uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking and, and go through the process of issuing proposed regulations, collecting comments, and then adopting final regulations. I think there's a lot of gaps left by the statute. Um, there's a lot of questions here that the taxpayers just don't know the answer to. And it's, it's great that they issue notices. It's great that they issue FAQs. But at the end of the day, I think they need something more substantive. Well, Nick, I have to thank you again for that extremely thorough overview and breaking down the major issues on this very complex topic. I mean, this is something that we will be watching for quite some time, and we really appreciate you lending your expertise to the podcast. So thanks again for joining us. It was my pleasure, and thank you for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, three professors examine unanswered tax and accounting questions about tokenized tangible assets. Lincoln Fleming examines tax loss harvesting, and he offers strategies for maximizing the benefits of capital loss carryovers. In Tax Notes State, Ted Turian examines a 2021 California Franchise Tax Board ruling that discusses situations in which a pass-through entity serves as a holding entity for another pass-through entity. Robert Willens examines how the state of Illinois treats Norton LifeLock's sale of its enterprise security assets for tax purposes. In Tax Notes International, Nana Amasarfa reports on two tax transparency shareholder proposals filed at Microsoft and Cisco. Six KPMG practitioners consider the international implications of the different paths countries are taking to implement Pillars 1 and 2. 
In Featured Analysis, Robert Goulder examines whether the EU should act on its own if Pillar 1 fails at the international level. On the Opinions page, Robert Goulder also considers the impact of President Biden's proposal to suspend the gas tax. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here is Tax Note State Editor-in-Chief Jan Rauschsender. Thank you, Paige. I'm here with Nikki Dobey, a partner with Evershed Sutherland. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. Thank you. So happy to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I'm so excited to chat. So let's get started. Would you tell me a little bit about your tax note state article titled Cross-Border State Legislative Tax Wars? Is this just the beginning? Sure. So, you know, so I do the policy piece. I try to do it as regularly as I can, but this is the latest installment of that. And this idea came to me earlier this year when Oregon took what seemed to be a fairly aggressive position with respect to the Oregon cat as it relates to, and not to get too in the weeds, car dealers in um, states, you know, Washington and Idaho. This was kind of creating some a buzz and talk amongst the states. So I was hearing about it from folks up in Washington and folks in Idaho. And then all of a sudden, this bill popped up in Idaho, which essentially declared Oregon's actions unconstitutional. This was a piece of state legislation, declared uh, Oregon's actions unconstitutional and said that any judgment Oregon tried to seek against an Idaho business, uh, there were certain parameters laid out, would be uh, null and void or effectively not enforced. And so I started looking into this and, you know, at first I, I thought this could just be kind of an interesting bill that some state legislators got together and, and, and were trying to make more of a political statement to Oregon. Um, but the more I dug in, the more I saw that, that you know, there's there are potentially some uh, things that the states could do to protect their citizens where they believe that other states are reaching beyond their borders and, and potentially trying to impose tax or collect tax that they believe is unconstitutional. So, so that was kind of where it started. And Initially, it was really just going to focus on this Oregon-Idaho issue. And then, lo and behold, New Hampshire passed a bill uh, fairly recently, um, which similarly asserted that states which were trying to impose personal income taxes on New Hampshire residents working remotely from New Hampshire was unconstitutional. So it it was a a little bit of a serendipity that these two bills kind of popped up. And, and so I discussed them both and, 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 and what the implications of those bills really may be both legally and practically. You know, along those lines, you write in your article, something along the lines of, At first blush, these bills may appear demonstrative, but peeling back the layers of the onion, Idaho and New Hampshire may just be on to something. Will you expand on that? Sure. So when you first read the bills, there's a a provision in the Constitution called the Full Faith and Credit Clause. And and this clause really uh, requires that one state respect the judgments of other states and, and other similar uh, things. It's, it, it goes beyond judgments. But so, you know, when you first read these, you think, well, there's the full faith and credit clause. This must be, you know, a bit of a nothing burger. But there's actually a very old case. I'm blanking on the name right now. I think it's Bigelow v. something from 1912, in which the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, established an exception to the full faith and credit 
clause. Um, in certain situations, um, the case primarily deals with personal jurisdiction and estoppel, um, but it does make some broader statements with respect to a state possibly not being required to enforce a judgment where that judgment was unconstitutional or the actions underlying that judgment are unconstitutional. Of course, in that case, uh, the court was asserting that one state did not have personal jurisdiction. So, so the, the article goes on to discuss, discuss some examples of how this case potentially could play out and how we could see um, the states of New Hampshire and Idaho and, and possibly others, because I don't think they necessarily needed state legislation to push this issue. Um, but I think the state legislation will provide the in-state courts potentially some cover to go down this path. So, so I think it's an issue we we may see these particular states kind of push on. And who knows, maybe we'll see you know, this issue come up again over 100 years later before the Supreme Court. And, and we'll see what the full faith and credit clause um, really does mean today. Absolutely. Certainly something to keep our eyes out for. I always enjoy your SALT policy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nikki. It is such a pleasure. I always enjoy catching up with you. Thank you so much. Love to be back anytime. And we're going to hold you to that. You can find Nikki's article online at taxnotes.com and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.